verse. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest what? He fall. And if we could entitle this passage with a simple title to capture its essence, it would be the danger of spiritual privilege. The danger of spiritual privilege. It's a section of scripture all about a people who had tremendous spiritual privilege. But who forfeited that spiritual privilege and fell in an unbelievable judgment. And it can happen to the most privileged people of all. Back up one verse from chapter 10 to verse 27 in chapter 9. And see how the Apostle Paul ends that chapter. He says, I buffet my body. That's buffet, not buffet. I buffet my body. Same spelling, different meaning. I buffet my body. That is, I give my body a black eye in the Greek terminology. I, I knock my body out, as it were. And make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. In other words, Paul says, I exercise self-control so that in my ministry to others, I don't wind up disqualifying myself. It is possible to be in a position of tremendous spiritual privilege and become disqualified for any ministry at all and to bring yourself under great judgment. That happens all the time to people. Let me put it in the context right here. I believe at the Master's College we are in a situation of tremendous spiritual privilege. All right? This is a very unusual thing that God is doing in this school. I heard the other day that Don Gilmore said we are the fastest growing college in the country. There's a tremendous amount of interest here. God's hand is on this institution. We have seen him do mighty things here in our midst and continue to see those things day in and day out. There's an unusual thing that God is doing in our fellowship. We have great spiritual privilege. And there is a danger in that. And the danger in the midst of spiritual privilege is an abused liberty. We are all enjoying the freedom we have in Christ. We are enjoying all that God is providing for us here. We are enjoying the privileges of our college and the privileges of our fellowship and the privileges of our learning environment, the privileges of God's blessing upon us. And just at the time we think we stand, we are in great danger of falling. It happens when we overemphasize our freedom and underemphasize self Discipline and self-denial. People who enjoy great privilege always live on the edge of disaster. And the Israelites are a classic illustration. And so were the Corinthians. In fact, Paul, in writing to them in chapters 8 and 9, mentioned their great freedom, but they were abusing that freedom. In fact, the Corinthian church was so filled with sin that they are, without question, the most criticized verbally chastened of all the churches of the New Testament. They were engaging in all kinds of abuses of their freedom. And so were in serious spiritual danger. In order to warn them about the spiritual danger attached to certain privileges, Paul gives them this illustration about Israel. And I want us to look at it, and I think it's a very, very instructive portion for us today as it was for the Corinthians. 
Notice in verse 11 and verse 6 that it says the things that happened to Israel happened as examples for us. So we are to learn from this as the Corinthians were to learn from it. Now, to begin with, I want you to notice in the first five verses, the assets, okay? The assets, the benefits that Israel enjoyed. Let's look at verse 1. It begins, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. In other words, I want to remind you of this. I want to set this in your mind based upon what he just said in verse 27, the possibility of having a privileged ministry and in the middle of it being disqualified. I I want you to be aware, brethren, that our fathers, and here he's referring to their Jewish forebears, our fathers, notice how many times the word all is used. We're all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were immersed into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Five times the word all is used. Without exception, he is saying, our fathers, the Jewish people, were all blessed by God. Every one of them was a beneficiary of God's bounty and God's goodness. All our fathers, he says, first of all, were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All of them received tremendous spiritual privilege in being led out of Egypt. And that's the issue that he's focusing on. In the great annals of redemptive history, the focal point of God's redeeming work was the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And the whole of the people of God were led out. They were all, it says, under the cloud. What cloud was that? What do we know that as? The Shekinah glory. The cloud that led them by day. The pillar of fire that led them by night. They were all under the cloud. They all experienced, mark this, divine guidance. Divine leading. Divine direction. Exodus 13:21 says the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them. So they all experienced the direct leadership of God. Secondly, they all passed through the sea. What sea was that? The Red Sea. And how did they pass through? God raised the waters on both sides. They walked through on dry land. And that was the basic touchstone of God's deliverance of Israel. They all not only experienced divine leading, they experienced divine deliverance. They were in a dire situation. They were in a captivity. They were wondrously delivered. They were called out by God's miraculous delivering power to become God's elect people, to be led by God's guiding care. Tremendous privilege. Not unlike the privilege of the Corinthians, who also were led out of the bondage of their own paganism, guided by God's direction in the wonderful founding of that church under the inspired ministry of the Apostle Paul. We know about those wonderful beginning times in Corinth from the book of Acts. And not unlike our own experience. In many ways, this college was led out of a, of a fearful bondage into a new liberty in Christ, and we have experienced the leading of God. Notice verse 2. And all, again, were, and I would rather use the word immersed and see the term here as a non-technical term and not see this as a baptism in the the spiritual or the, the religious sense. And all were immersed into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And what does he mean by that? 
It simply refers to identification. It carries the idea that the whole people of God were solidly identified with their unique God-ordained leader, Moses. They were all identified as one with their leader. Just as the Corinthian church was immersed as one, uh, baptized, as it were, into the body of Christ by the agency of the Spirit of God and so forth, so in the in the Old Testament, the people of God were baptized in the sense that they were literally immersed into the leadership of Moses. They were identified as one with their leader. They became part of an assembly that was under the direction of an agent of God by the name of Moses. They were a single community. They were a single people. There was solidarity there, all wrapped up in the leadership of Moses. And so the people of God not only were given God's guidance through the cloud, and not only were given God's deliverance passing through the sea, but were united with God's choice leader and given solidarity as a community of people with common life, common participation, and a common goal, a common objective, and common spiritual privileges. They became followers of Moses, who was God's anointed servant. Very much the case of the Corinthian church. They were made one in the Spirit of God. They became one community, one people, one assembly. Very much like the school. We too have become one. We are joined together on common ground, under common leadership, by the work of the Spirit of God. Verse 3 says, They all ate the same spiritual food. They were sustained by the same manna that came out of heaven. It's called spiritual food because its source was heavenly, not the fact that it was not physical food, but it had a spiritual source. It was derived from God's spirit. So these people experienced God's guidance. They experienced God's deliverance. They experienced God's leadership. They experienced God's provision. And it says, you notice in verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink, drinking from a spiritual rock. That is a rock that gave water because of divine intervention. And the rock was Christ. Continuous, constant provision. The rock was Christ. The supernatural presence of the angel of the Lord never allowed them to thirst in the desert. The manna was evidence of the presence of the angel of the Lord. The water was evidence of the presence of the angel of the Lord. And of course, we know the angel of the Lord very often represents a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And in the truest sense, all the redeemed belong to Christ. They were Christ's as we are Christ's, for he won them all in his sacrificial death on the cross and is to all the redeemed people the source of their blessing. So all had the same spiritual privileges, wonderful deliverance, great guidance, solidarity as a people, divine provision. To sum it up, we could say in going through the sea, they all experienced emancipation. In under the cloud, they all experienced guidance. In being immersed into Moses, they all experienced identification with a new community. And receiving manna and water, they all experienced divine sustenance. What a great truth. And people, let me tell you, I in my own ministry have never seen more evidence of God's hand in anything than I've seen in this school. And I believe the school in a very real way has been freed, has been emancipated to a new day and a new time and a new blessing from God. 
And I believe we have all enjoyed and are enjoying his guidance. And we have been united solidly into a new assembly of redeemed people for the purpose of God. And we have been sustained by his power. We enjoy those assets, those privileges. Just like Israel did, just like the Corinthians did. I don't know if you can appreciate that because some of you haven't been in another school. But you have to understand that what God is doing here is very, very unique. And you are a privileged people. And I am privileged even to be a part of this. Then comes the shocker. Look at verse 5. In spite of all the spiritual privilege, verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. What a sad statement. And they were laid low in the wilderness. Do you know the story? What happened to the entire generation that came out of Egypt? What happened to them? They died in the wilderness. They never entered the promised land. They never came to the fullness of the inheritance that God had provided in his promise for them. All that spiritual privilege and their corpses were strewn all across the wilderness. They perished. They never entered the land. So blessed. Set free from bondage. Free from the world, as it were, led into a new and rich fellowship. Sustained by God. Blessed beyond description. And yet, with most of them... God was not well pleased. In Numbers 14, 16, it says, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, which he swore to give to them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness, and God says, I killed them. God literally took the life of a whole generation of people, and some estimates range up to two million people of that original group never entered the promised land it says they were laid low the word means to be strewn they were just strewn all over the desert disqualified it's a frightening thing but when a people have great privilege and they do not have great discipline when they have great opportunity and they do not understand self-denial, they are inevitably, inexorably on a path to judgment. Paul himself says, I beat my body into subjection because I don't want to come to the point in my life where in preaching to others, I myself am disqualified. I exercise self-control. I exercise self-denial. I don't want to squander my spiritual privileges. We have so much, so much, and it's so easy to take things for granted and lose it all. What about the abuses? Let's go to verse 6. The assets are in the first five verses. The abuses are in the next five. Verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved what were their sins sin number one abuse number one they craved evil things 
Pretty simple, isn't it? Here they were in the midst of tremendous spiritual privilege. But in their hearts, they were craving after evil things. The author, I says, they lusted after evil things. They were longing for evil things. They were pressed and pushed by the lust of the flesh. In fact, we read in Numbers chapter 11, we also read in Psalm 78 that they were, they were always wanting to go back and have what they once had in Egypt. Can you imagine that? But you know there are people like that? People who have come to Christ? People who have come to the fullness of blessing? People who have come to the Master's College? People who are sitting under the Word of God and in their hearts they are hankering for the stuff that was a part of their past life? Somebody came to me recently and said that they saw a group of Master's College students standing out in front in line at a theater showing an R-rated movie. Now that hurt me deeply. Because to me, what that says is there is a person or persons on the brink of forfeiting great spiritual privilege because they are longing after things that in Christ they should have left far behind. Far behind. That's the kind of hankering that devastates spiritual privilege. That's the kind that makes you end up disqualified for ministry. For usefulness. John says, love not what? The world, neither the things that are in the world. All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And all of it is passing away, he says. But it's not uncommon for people who have entered into great spiritual privilege to be hankering after the things that they enjoyed before that spiritual privilege these people in Israel blessed of God these Corinthians blessed of God and here they are craving evil things if that's true of your heart you're on very thin ice if you love the things of the world the philosophy of the world the, the material things of the world the entertainment of the world The morals of the world, even the music and fashion and all the rest of the stuff that the world has to offer. If that's what you hanker after, you're in great danger. Great danger. You're sleeping too close to where you got in. And you may be headed for a rude awakening. Sometimes liberty opens the door so wide that lust for the world enters in. You notice that? We're free in Christ. And we want you at this college to be mature enough to enjoy your freedom. And we don't want to put you in a box and tell you what spirituality is and, and show you and force you to live it. What we want to say to you is we want you to love the Lord Jesus Christ and we want you to enjoy your spiritual privilege to the point where you're mature enough and thankful enough not to waste it. That takes character. Anybody can do what they're told. It takes character to do what you're not told. The second sin mentioned here is in verse 7. And do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That's taken out of Exodus 32. 
The second sin, the first sin was lusting after the world and the things of the flesh. The second sin is idolatry, and this really hits the nail on the head in Corinth. Because these Corinthian Christians were still attending pagan feasts. They were going back and saying, hey, we can handle that. We can go back to a pagan festival and we can live it up at the pagan festival. We can go to the social events, the ceremonies, the celebrations of our old religious society. We can do all of that. In fact, uh, a little later in this chapter, the Apostle Paul says to them, you better learn over again. You cannot go to the table of the Lord and then turn right around and go to the table of demons. You can't do that. You're desecrating the table of the Lord. But they're saying, we're strong, we can eat meat offered to idols, we can go to those old festivals, we're all right. We're pretty strong in the Lord. In fact, back in chapter 4, Paul sarcastically says to them, no, aren't you rich and aren't you kings and haven't you got your act together? And then he says, I wish it were true. You really think you're something, but you're not. Israel itself, barely out of Egypt, enjoying freedom falls right back into the idolatry of Egypt. And what did they do in the wilderness? They made unto themselves a what? A golden what? Calf. Please turn your cassette tape over at this time for side two. And provided for by God and blessed by God. And they fell back into idolatry when their leader went up into the mountain to commune with God. And they made under the leadership of Aaron a golden calf. And I don't know if you know this, but that Exodus 32, they, they were just out of Egypt. They had just been taken through the sea. They were being guided by God and fed by God and provided for by God and blessed by God. And they fell back into idolatry when their leader went up into the mountain to commune with God. And they made under the leadership of Aaron a golden calf. And I don't know if you know this, but that was not some false god. That was an idol made to the true God. They put God in idol form. Frightening. Frightening desecration of God who will not be reduced to an idol. They went to idolatry. That's what they knew in their former life. And it wasn't just a simple sort of ceremonial idolatry. Look at verse 7 again. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Can I tell you what that means? Sitting down to eat and drink means they had a drunken festival typical of their idolatry rose up to play a most interesting term the word play is a Hebrew word referring to marital embraces sexual activity it is used for example of uh, I believe it's around Genesis 26 verse 8 or so where Isaac was caressing his own wife and it's a conjugal caress they had a drunken gluttonous orgy all supposedly in worship of the true God whom they had reduced to a golden calf. Absolutely incredible how a people could be so privileged and so desecrate the God whose privilege they enjoyed. Verse 25 of that chapter says that in the authorized version says they were naked. The uh, New American Standard says something like the fact that they, they began to to go loose. Typically in Egypt, when a pagan festival started and the drunkenness and the gluttony began to take place and the orgy began, the people began to discard their clothes. And we have archaeological drawings of Egyptians at these kind of events who are either naked or nearly naked. Can you imagine 
Such privileges as these people led out of the land of Egypt into freedom, headed for the promised land under the guidance of God, and they revert back to a pagan orgy? Sad. By the way, in Exodus 32, around verse 28, it says exactly what it says in verse 8 here. God killed... There it says 23,000 of them, but initially in verse 28... At the incident of the golden calf, God killed 3,000 men in one day. You say, well, how does this relate to us? Well, let me just put it to you in a practical way, young people. I think it's important for you to understand there are idols today, aren't there? There are idols today. Whatever the gods of the age might be. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's education. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's clothes. Maybe it's cars. Maybe it's houses. Maybe it's comfort. I don't know what it might be for you, but this age has its gods. There's no question about that. Ezekiel 14, 3 and 4 talks about the idols of the heart. Whatever it is that you bow down to that replaces God, that's your idol. That's libel on the character of God to substitute something else for Him. If, if you say, well, how do I know what my idols are? If you spend more time preoccupying your mind with things other than God, His will, His word, and His way, then that's an idol that has taken His place. I mean, ask yourself basic questions. Like, if I have free time, what do I choose to do with it? Do I choose to pursue my relationship with God and strengthen that, or do I run to something in the world? It's a fair question. From the very beginning of God's law, He said He would tolerate no other gods, and there is even a capital punishment assigned to those who worship idols in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 to 7. It's very serious to God when you worship something other than Him. What shrine are you bowing at? Uh, what's, your th what's, what's the thing you love? What is it that you worship? Fair question. These people not only were guilty of the sad and almost unbelievable thing of craving what they'd just been delivered from, but they made unto themselves an idol and they worshipped their old way rather than the true God. What do you worship? What do you bow to? Thirdly, they were sinful not only in those first two areas, but in the third area, they abused their spiritual privilege through immorality. Verse 8 says, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. In one day. Numbers 25, 23,000 people fell. And he says, don't act immorally like they did and pay the price they paid. Immorality. In Corinth, there was immorality everywhere. In fact, there was a temple to Venus there and people would go to worship Venus and they would worship Venus through sexual immorality. I had the occasion to be in Baalbek, which is a city east of... Lebanon, the eastern part of Lebanon, it's an ancient city, and there there is a temple to the god Bacchus, the god of drunken fornication and orgies. And it was an incredible place to go through it. It's still very much intact. They've reconstructed it from the, the archaeological dig, and, and all of the pillars and all of the cross pieces have uh, vines and grapes celebrating drunkenness. 
And in the middle was a great vomit pit where you vomited after you got yourself so gorged that you needed to get rid of it. And then you went back and continued your eating and drinking. And they described to us all of the sexual orgies and deviations that occurred there, all in the name of religion. And in the old story of Israel, tragically, they were just disqualified from their usefulness because of their idolatry, but also because of their immorality. And immorality and idolatry go together. I'm telling you, you worship the world's things and you're going to wind up living the way they live. And so Israel of old was disqualified because they failed to use their spiritual privilege. The Corinthian church was on the edge of the same thing because of a failure to use their spiritual privilege. And one of the heart issues was this matter of morality. He has spoken about that to the Corinthians, and I'm kind of editing in my mind because our time is getting away from us. But in chapter 5, would you look at verse 1 for a moment? You get a little bit of an idea of where the Corinthians were. It is actually reported, he says, that there's immorality among you. Immorality in the church. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the pagans, namely, that someone has implied a sexual relationship with his father's wife. A form of incest. Sexually deviated. And what was their attitude? Verse 2. And you have become arrogant. And you haven't mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your sight. Instead of being broken over this perversion, you're proud of it. You're arrogant. Immorality. In the church at Corinth, immorality among the people of God in Israel, 23,000 of them were killed in one day. And that's a great danger to us young people. You and I know full well the strong impulses of young people at your age. And if you're going to protect yourself from immorality, you're going to have to work hard at it. You're going to have to work hard at it. And you're not going to work very hard at it if you go and sit in front of 18-foot-high naked people in an R-rated movie. Try to shake those images out of your brain. I would venture to say that those of you who have seen scenes like that will never forget them. Never. That's powerful stuff. And you better be careful of the things you read and the things you listen to. The conversations you're a part of. You have to shirk those kinds of potential disasters in the realm of immorality that encroach upon us so, so much. Well, there's a fourth sin, and that is mentioned to us in verse 9. Nor, he says, this is another abuse of spiritual privilege, nor let us test the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Again, Numbers 21 would be the chapter if we had time to read it. Testing the Lord. What does that mean? Pushing Him as far as you think He might go. Some people like to live that way. Let me give you the idea. Here it is, here's the basic idea. Well, let's do as much as we can possibly get away with. Right? Instead of asking myself, how can I live purely unto God? I ask myself, how much can I do and still get by without getting zapped? How far can I go? Instead of saying, how much like the Savior can I be, you say, how far can I go and get away with it? 
But what a skewed perspective. The Israelites tried to live on the ragged edge as far as they could go. And the Lord sent snakes to bite them with a deadly poison. Don't test God's tolerance. You don't want to do that. You don't want to play on the edge of God's grace. So ask yourself this question. What am I doing that I know I shouldn't do, but I'm just testing God's patience? What am I doing that I know I shouldn't do? Just testing God's patience. Is that the way I want to live my life? Is that what I want to do with my spiritual privilege? And then there's a fifth sin. A fifth abuse, verse 10. Nor grumble. That doesn't seem such a heavy-duty deal as the rest of them, but it is. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. In fact, in Exodus 16, too, it says the whole congregation of Israel grumbled. The whole group of them. You ever heard about the murmuring of the children of Israel? They were griping and complaining. They were giving audible expression to their unwarranted dissatisfaction. By the way, you read Numbers chapter 16 and you will find that 14,700 of them died for complaining. That'll tell you how God feels about negative complaining people. I have a basic principle that I try to work on. And that is this. If you have a negative person in your organization, fire him. Immediately. And if you can't fire him, pay him to stay home. And if he won't stay home, rent him an office in another building. But don't let him near your people. Poison. If people complain and people are negative, it's usually because they think they're not getting what they deserve. You want what you deserve? Anybody here want what they deserve? I don't want what I deserve. I want grace, don't you? I want mercy. So I'm already way ahead of the game. Whatever God's given me is more than I deserve. Life is more than I deserve. Breath is more than I deserve. The judgment angel called the destroyer. The rabbis used to call him Mashith. He's the one who slew the firstborn in Egypt. He was ready to slay in the plagues of Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 24. He destroyed the Assyrians in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 21. He says, the people who complained, 14,700 of them were slain by the destroyer angel. Death to the complainers. Boy, that's strong stuff. The people who craved the world, God killed them. The people who worshipped the idol, God slew them. The people who acted immorally, God killed them. The people who tested the Lord, God killed them. The people who grumbled, God killed them. You get the idea how God feels about this? He's very upset. On the one hand, you have spiritual privilege. On the other hand, you have a wasted spiritual privilege that ends up in a frightful judgment. Don't be a complainer. Be thankful. Here were these people. They had been delivered out of bondage. They had been led through the sea in a great miracle. They had been sustained with food and water. They were guided by the very hand of God. They were one new people under a great and godly leader, and they complained. That's an attitude. That has nothing to do with circumstances. That has nothing to do with reality. That has to do with a, a negative heart, an unthankful heart.
Young people, we have great spiritual privilege. Listen carefully as I pull this together. We have great spiritual privilege here. And the abuses of that privilege are craving after evil things. Setting up false gods in our hearts. Immorality. Presuming on the patience of God so that we live on the edge of our liberty instead of seeking to be like Christ. And complaining, grumbling, murmuring, griping. This is a warning. This is a warning. That a lack of self-denial and a lack of self-control in our privileges can lead us into these abuses. And these abuses lead us right out of spiritual privilege. Don't be flirting with the world. Don't crave after the evil things. Don't set up false gods in your heart. Don't hanker for the immorality of this world. Don't push the patience of God and don't complain when you don't get what you think you ought to have in every area. That's tragic. And frankly, it could result in chastening, could result in death. So the assets and the abuses lead us to the admonition. Look at verse 11. Now these things happen to them as what? As an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now he says, these things are written for us who are, who are alive in the messianic age, the last age when the Messiah has come. And even though he hasn't come and fully set up his kingdom, the, the last times began when Jesus came. Here we are in the end times, the last times. The times of Messiah after his coming. And these things should stand as examples to us. The subtle, deceiving danger of spiritual privilege that can lead to disqualification. And again and again, you know, the fort gets stormed because we think we're safe. And so he says in verse 12... Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you're sitting there saying to yourself, boy, my life is secure. I got my act together. Boy, those things don't apply to me. You may be in great danger. In Revelation 3.3, the Lord wrote to the church at Sardis, watch, be alert. There was a hill called an Acropolis at Sardis. It was built on a jutting spur of rock. They thought it was impregnable. Sardis had this Acropolis, this fort right on a high rock. Cyrus, the king, was besieging Sardis, and he offered a reward to any soldier who could find a way to get in that place. He had to get up this rock and into the city to take it. He had a soldier by the name of Hyerclides, and he was watching one day, and he saw an interesting thing happen, according to the historical record. He saw one of the soldiers inside Sardis drop his helmet. It fell over the edge of the wall, and it rolled all the way down the edge of the cliff to the bottom. He watched the soldier go after his helmet, and he climbed down. And as this soldier of Cyrus was watching, he marked the trail. That night, he led a band of soldiers right back up that same trail, which was the only access, and took Sardis. What a warning. The smallest thing, the smallest vulnerability... The smallest area of life that you don't have in control of Jesus Christ can be the downfall of the whole city. 
You say, well, boy, that, that's a tough thing. I mean, we're very vulnerable to all these things. It's tough to not lust after the things of the world. It's tough not to set up the gods of this age and make them your gods. It's tough to be morally pure. It's, it's tough not to push God with your liberty. It's tough to never complain and murmur. I mean, how can we handle all of this? Do we have the strength? How can we stay qualified? How can we stay in the place of spiritual privilege? Verse 13 is the final point. It's because we have this advantage. This great advantage. In case you're sort of saying to yourself, I don't know if I can survive. I don't know if I can make it. Verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, you'll never have a temptation that's superhuman in the sense that you can't handle it. They'll all be common to man. In other words, they'll all be those that man should expect and that are within the sphere of man's capability to deal with. They are bearable according to human strength. And God is what? Faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are, what? Able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So whenever a strong temptation comes, what are you looking for? The way of escape. God is faithful. God will provide it. Nothing is so superhuman that it's irresistible. No temptation will ever come to you that is more than you can bear. And God will always be there. And He will always find for you the ekbasis, the way out. If you want to take it. If you want to take it. And if you take it, you will continue to enjoy spiritual privileges under the blessing of God. Let's bow together in prayer.